welcome to Uplifting Impact. So incredibly excited to be here with all of you again today. And I'm excited too, because I get to talk to a long lost friend, someone who I've been following for a really long time. We met, we're not even going to say how many years ago, um, but we're able to reconnect to be able to have this conversation. So it's a real delight to me because she's a rock star. There's no, there's really no other way to say it. So um, Evie Walker is actually here with us today. She is the founder and CEO of Offer. Offer is a national talent brokerage. It's You can find information at www.offer.co. And what she looks for are board members and CEOs who want to find a way to really bring in high-performing teams. So her main focus is debunking some of the mediocrity uh, I can never say this, these words, Meritocracy. right? Meritocracy. It always gets me. Meritocracy <laughs> myth, um, abolishing performance reviews and exploring how to ensure that the future of work. And I love this, that the future of work is a virtual 30 hour work week where black women are thriving. I have followed Efi for a really long time because one of the things that she does better than anybody else I know is being able to advocate for what the work experience should and can look like. And I have just really appreciated how she she uses her platform really to talk about the things that we could do better and, and the ways that we could do those things better. She also, uh, through her work, makes sure that she's connecting people, constantly connecting people and putting people in the and helping getting you know people into the right positions at the right time for the right organization. So we are so excited to be able to be here with you, Efi. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you so much, Deanna. Appreciate it. Yeah. So there's so many questions that I want to ask you, but the first one I want to talk to you about is this 30 hour work week. Explain this vision to me, explain it to our listeners. What does it look like and why is it so important? So I start with the premise that black women are constantly rewarded for toil. We are constantly told that we are superheroes. We are applauded for jumping, you know, twice as high, working twice as hard. And my reflection as the oldest of six kids, as the child of Nigerian immigrants, someone who watched my own mom toil away oftentimes with multiple jobs as she knocked it out of the park at work, but also did so at home, was this burning belief that Black women were made for more than just toil. Yeah. Our rest should be celebrated. Our leisure should be celebrated. And so as I think about the company that I'm building and also the workplace that I envision for the future, it's one in which where my mom would, someone like my mom wouldn't have to choose between those two things, right? So she could be a leader at work, but also be a leader at home as so many black women are. You know, it's so uh, amazing because I think that, you know, people are talking a lot about the pandemic and all the changes and all of the, you know, uh, just like things that we thought were impossible. I can't tell you how many times I'd be in a call with somebody and they'd say, oh no, we could never do virtual. Oh no, everybody has to be in the office. And they had these things that they were holding as truths that we've been able to debunk, right? Like we've been able to say like, these, these are absolutely not true. And there's so many different, right? Positive things that have been able to happen because we've been able to take away those, like, I don't know, founding truths, right? These things that people held to be objective, but that really weren't objective, that were really more, much more subjective. But I guess one of the questions, right? People are going to be thinking is like, how do you get there? 
right? How, how do you get there? So, so that's a, an amazing vision, but what, what changes would need to happen in order for us to get to a place where we really understand what that looks like? So I think a couple of things are true. The first one being that we have to understand the world as it is. So the traditional work week was designed really around this factory model. And that's not where most people are working. We're in a knowledge economy now. And all of the research around how we can, how often or how long the human mind can focus on knowledge work really suggests that five to six hours is really the optimal period. And when you begin tracking people's time, many people are taking breaks for social media, right? They're taking breaks to you know, have lunch, catch up with their friends, order their groceries online. <laughs> We're doing all of these sorts of things that are not actually related to work. And so when you strip all those things away, what you're left with is about five to six hours of work, focused, intense work. So we began asking ourselves a set of questions around, why can't we design with that in mind, right? So I'm a, I'm a parent, I'm a, I'm a mom, and I think about the rush, the panic I would have pre-pandemic of trying to dash my children off to two different schools, and then the panic at the end of the day of trying to dash off to go and collect them and pick them up. And what if we actually just oriented ourselves and said, I can do five to six hours of excellent work, excellent, focused, intense work, no distractions, and to have, you know, doing a good day's work be considered good enough, right? And so it's it's things like that. So it takes a reorientation around how we think about work. The second thing is leveraging technology, right? I mean, we have a lot of tools right now that we've all been forced to use because of the pandemic, but how, how can we think about how we orient our spaces, how we spend time together and how we use technology to make things much more efficient? And then the third thing is to disabuse ourselves of this myth. And I think we've seen that now during the pandemic, that FaceTime is what matters. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was a, I'm a lawyer by training. I know you know this world very well, <laughs> right? And we so, have the same affliction, right? right? Exactly, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so there's this idea in the legal world of FaceTime, right? It's, it's you know, mm-hmm. does this partner see you? Are you showing that you're working late as opposed to being much more outcomes driven? Let's focus on the outcomes. Am I achieving the outcomes that are set? And how I do it, really shouldn't be of your concern, right? Like let, let's focus on the outcomes as opposed to forcing people to show up and put on a show for you as opposed to focus on the hard work of actually delivering results for your- you No, know, I couldn't, like, I wish I could underline every word that you just said, because honestly, like that's how we run our organization, right? We have some core hours that we have for everybody on the team, but because we're all over the world, it's important for people to get the work done and the time that makes the most sense for them. They have outside things that they're doing that are really, really cool and that we want to continue to support, but none of that would be possible if we were constricted Right. I think people think about it as an asset to to hold on to some of these things, but I actually think it's a constriction, right? On the ability for your people to be innovative, to show up fully, to actually complete uh, the work at the level of professionalism that they want to, because they have to take into consideration all these other things and expend their energy and all these other things that take away from their capacity. Right. And so that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And we're seeing it even now at our firm. O4 focuses predominantly, as you know, on C-suite level hires and working with companies to find top talent in core C-level positions. And what we found in the midst of the pandemic is that many more companies are open to remote work. They're open to work from anywhere. And that has, that has changed fundamentally 
the quality of their talent pool because now they can draw upon talent from from anywhere in a way that a lot of companies pre-pandemic were not willing to imagine or envision. And I think that there's, it's a two-way street. I think what we're seeing is that people are having expectations that are changing from the organizational level, but people who are looking for positions also have expectations that are changing too. And, you know, there's this really interesting pull, like push dynamic that's going on between both of those forces that I think is going to land us. I hope exactly what you, where you, what, what you articulated. As I, the hope vision. So too. I hope so too. I hope so too. That's a phenomenal. Okay. So one of the big questions I have to ask you, right? Because I know that majority of what you do is you're focusing on, I mean, I can't even say a majority of what you do because you're doing so many awesome things, but one of the big things that you do is to help find uh, C-suite candidates, right? For, for these positions with a real emphasis on looking for people who have diverse backgrounds. One of the things that we hear all of the time is, well, we just can't find that talent. Oh, that, you know, in our industry, this talent doesn't exist in this industry, right? And so there's a whole host of things that people will say, but it, it all comes back to this idea, oh, it just doesn't exist. The pipeline's not there yet. How do you respond to that question? Because it is, I would say, one of the number one one questions we get all the time. With grace <laughs> and love, and sometimes yes. a drink. So, <laughs> to be honest, so here's what here's what we know to be true. One, the pipeline story and conversation is a really tired one. Mm-hmm. What we found in our research is that uh, number one. of the C-level leaders we placed last year were either Black, Asian, or Latinx. So Mm -hmm. we know know it can be done, 90%. Into historically white institutions, we know it can be done. Number two, the research shows that 70 to 80% of CEOs still predominantly hire from their own network. Mm -hmm. So what does that tell you? This is not about they're not there. You haven't looked. You haven't looked. To be able to bring them in, you'd first have to want to go and find them. Right. Number two. Number three, at our own firm, in our 10-year history, we've only had two clients who have ever hired someone that was not known to them personally, known to their network, or known to our network. So what does that tell you? It also tells you this is not a meritocracy, right? Right. It's not a meritocracy. It's not about actually, quote unquote, oh, we just don't know. We're committed to just hiring the best. And the best all happened to turn out to be white and male, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And right. Just, the the, word, the the evidence just doesn't doesn't bear that out to be to be true. And you and I both know that if we were as as women who are running our own companies, if someone came to us and said, "I have a slate of candidates for you, and they're all men," and they'd left out fifty percent of the organization, you would never consider that excellent. You would not consider that high quality. How could it be if you've left out half of the half of the half of the world? And so we take a very similar approach, which is to say, any any organization that is claiming that this is about merit and that this is just about the pipeline isn't isn't really serious about the reality of who's actually getting through your doors and who you are seeking out. And typically, you're seeking out people who are like you, right, and who remind you. Of yourself. The last thing I'll add is that there was some research that came out a couple of years ago that I think the average white person only has one black friend, right? And yeah, so, as I saw that. Of, right, as a woman of color, any woman of color who is working in corporate America, or quite frankly, working anywhere, the idea that we would only know one white person is laughable. 
it would be a barrier to our success, right? So some of this is about what are you, who do you feel like you need to be in proximity to, right? As you're thinking about building your, building your company and building your teams. You know, I think one of the things that I would add to that is, um, you know, when you're thinking about the network, it's not just about if you know that your network might be uh, detrimental to you being able to pull in a diverse group, that that's also where you start to make some really concentrated and intentional decisions about how you expand your network, right? Because it takes a while to, to, to build a network. And that's why being able to partner with an organization like yours that has a, a much more diverse network, that means, you know, thinking about like, what are the systems or structures that we have in place that are just perpetuating what we, like what our current normal is, right? That those are all steps that organizations can pretty easily take once they recognize that this is an issue. And that's much easier, I think, than continuing to have the same conversation about, yeah, there's a pipeline issue, right? That I think it's it's simpler and it actually solves for the for the challenge in front of them. You know what's interesting about that though, Deanna, is that I don't know what I what I have found in the last 10 years is I actually don't know that that's any easier. Hmm. And the reason and the reason I say that is because changing structures and systems requires a confrontation. It requires you to examine self. It requires you to quite frankly, examine your water, right? And we take a groundwater approach at 04. Every client that works with us has to first undergo a talent and culture audit where we are examining Mm -hmm. their culture. You know, who thrives here? Who gets stretch assignments? Who gets promotions? Who has access to senior leaders? What are the unspoken rules of success? And then we take that information and we go back to the client, usually the CEO or the board, and we walk them through our findings. And we won't work with you unless you are A, willing to examine your water, and two, you're willing to publish those findings publicly. Wow. So it is a confrontation. You have to then say, it's not the people, it's not the fish, it's not, they're not the problem. You know, if you and I, if we're taking a groundwater approach, this is not my analogy. If we were looking at a pond and there were certain fish that continued not to make it, I think you and I would both look at the water and say, what's in the water, mm-hmm. right? But when it comes to DEI, the focus is always on the individual. It's always on the fish, you know, yeah. they need to get stronger gills. They need to work yeah. harder there. The fish aren't there. When in actuality, it's your water. You need to examine first what's in your water and then be intentional about making certain changes within that water. And that's that's the work that we do at O4 in helping organizations do the examination, sit with that information, and then say, here's what we're going to do about it. We are going to give everyone the buddy treatment, right? Like you are going to give everyone access to the unspoken rules that all your buddies get when they're thinking about joining the Mm -hmm. firm. You are going to publish that information to make the search process much more democratic. You are going to hold virtual informal coffee chats the same way you would with your friends, right? These are very systematic bias interrupters that we're putting into place at every level of the process. And I, I really love that you made that distinction too, because I was thinking like what's easier is to do something about it than to just keep like re- repeating it. But you're right. There is a ton, ton, ton of hard work that has to go into changing what your systems look like and changing the way that your thought process looks like and changing even where people are putting blame or, you know, and how people are, are identifying that. So 
I, I really appreciate that, that clarification too, of the point. So I guess one of the things um, that I think, you know, if I was listening to this, I'd be thinking, well, confrontation. Okay. Just even that word alone makes me feel like this is something we couldn't do, right? That this isn't a pathway that we, that we could move that we could move towards. So if there's somebody who's thinking, you know what, we do have some problems with their water. There's some real things that that are, are going on there. And, and I would love to be able to put it through a cleansing system. I don't even know how to, I don't know how to keep with this analogy, but you understand what I'm saying, right? I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so tell me if you like, what, what would I do if I, if I was trying to do, you know, something kind of similar to point out some of these opportunities within the organization, what would be some places that you'd say like, Hey, this is a place that we often find um, some of these some of these challenges manifesting. So really, so co- a couple of things are true. So one, as I mentioned before, to do this work, you'd have to be you'd have to be willing to look. Mm-hmm. So if you're not willing to look, it doesn't make sense, right? So you know, if we take something simple, I'll speak for myself specifically as a new mom. You know, I really wanted to lose my baby weight. But if I was not willing to get on that scale, <laughs> nothing was moving. So you have to be you have to be willing to do it, or nothing changes. So I want to just underscore that as a central tenant. There's no way to skip past that step. Yep, absolutely. The second, the second thing, and that's a confrontation, right? That's that. When I mean confrontation, right. it just means the ability to see oneself and not sure. to judge it, but to see it, see it for what it is. The second thing I'll say is that where we see this play out are in many of the places I've already mentioned, which is to say, uh, just at a baseline level, there are still organizations that do not track hiring, promotion, stretch opportunities, access to senior leadership, pay, pay gaps, pay equity. They do not track those things along both race and gender. Mm -hmm. Right. And when you do that, this is research coming out of McKinsey and lean in, if you do not do that, you will leave out women of color, right? And all the research supports supports that. And that is right. a simple, that is a simple tracking. We haven't even gotten to the stage of doing anything yet. And yet right. I have a client right now, or you know, we were talking to a potential client where even the act, when we asked them for a list of people to speak with and said, please identify them by race, ethnicity, and also gender, they were willing to do it for gender. They were not willing to do it for race and ethnicity. Yeah. Even the white leader would not put down that she was white. Right. And so that in and of itself is telling. So if you're not right. willing to track who's getting paid, who's getting access to Deanna as a senior leader, who's getting stretch assignments, who's getting guidance around organizational politics, then you can't fix what you're not tracking or measuring. So that's what I would say is the initial, you have at a baseline, you've got to know who's in your organization. You've got to know who's getting promoted. You've got to know who's getting hired. You've got to know what sources, who's doing the referring. You have to track along all of those dimensions before you can begin making real change. And, you know, I think it's sometimes as simple as like even asking the question can be how you start that process, right? Because some organizations that we've worked with have never even asked the question. And because they've never asked the question, right, they, they're they not at a stage for, for having that confrontation because they haven't even begun to sort of think about this as an opportunity for them. And so uh, I do think that there's so much that can be learned. You know, what do they say? What gets measured gets 
gets done, right? Like, and, and so, and, and so if you, if you, if you're not even willing to go down that pathway to try and figure out what is happening in your organization, I think the other thing is a lot of these, you know, disparities are often invisible because the people mm-hmm. who are perpetuating them, the people who are a part of it, they, I mean, they're so they're in the water. So they can't tell that, that what's going on in the water is not right. Right. Or that's that something's, correct. and they're thriving in the water too. That's right. Correct. So that's the other thing too, is like, you see other fish who aren't doing as well, but you're like, but why? Cause I'm thriving. So you can right. too. Right. That's and so right. <laughs> you need sometimes to have that, that I think that data actually can provide a good filter to allow you to see what, what's actually happening around yeah. you. I would also add though, that there needs to be a willingness to celebrate, celebrate the canary in the the mine right so for so so often it is it is black women it is women of color who are we are the canary in the coal mine we are the ones sounding the alarm that there is a problem and if you silence mm. the findings if you silence which we've had we've had organizations where then we say we cannot work with you right we had an organization that tried to bury the report, right? And said that it didn't happen. That, that's not, that's true. It was a complete, complete denial. And we said, we're walking away. We, we have a promise to our network of 10,000 leaders all across the globe at every level of leadership. And one of those promises is that we will say the hard things. We will stand in proxy for them. And if you will not tell me and will not share with me publicly, then I can't possibly bring that to my network. So the other thing I would underscore is that when the leaders of color in your organization are saying this is a problem, you have to start from a place of belief, right? You have to suspend your disbelief. And that is a shockingly hard thing to do. You know, I had Mm -hmm. to tell a potential client, look, in our engagement so far, you have missed two meetings with me. It took me three weeks to schedule with you. You did a complete no-show twice. And I'm letting you know that I will not move forward in this engagement unless that is going to change because you're not going to do that to anyone that I introduced you to. And it took her aback Mm -hmm. as a senior leader who has not actually had that conversation so directly. And so that was a choice. And I said, I want you to think about it. I actually don't want you to answer to me, answer me and tell me, oh, you'll fix it. Think about it, give it a week. And then if you believe you can show up in this way, that you can carve out the same amount of time that you would expect someone to carve out for you, then we can have a conversation and we can move forward. But without that, deal's done, right? And so if you have to be willing to listen to that. And I can do that as an outsider, as a consultant, right. choices who feels very free. It is harder to do that. So hard to do. So hard to do. And if they do it, yeah, you're right. Giving them the space. It has been so amazing to talk to you. I would really love to have like a part three to 500 with you. Uh, so, we'll, so we'll just go ahead and schedule that. And okay, I promise, great. I promise to show up. Uh, and, uh, but in the meantime, if there are people, and I know there are who want to connect with you, who want to learn more about your work, who want to be one of those uh, clients who gets to walk alongside you and kind of learn from you, what, where should they go? What, where, where can we send them? Really, there are two places. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. So you can find me at Efi Walker. That's I, F as in Frank Y, last name Walker, common spelling. And then to our website at 04. So that's www.04, O, F as in Frank, F as in Frank, O, R.co. 
Awesome. Well, we are just so delighted to have learned from you. I took all kinds of notes as, as you, as you were chatting, I'm sure we'll get lots of really great feedback from this conversation. For those of you who are joining us here on the Uplifting Impact podcast, just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, this is, you know, the kind of conversation that we know that if we're, we're having them and we're having them frequently and we're thinking about the, the questions that were raised, we can help to move our organizations forward to be much more equitable. We can move our organizations past some of these excuses that we have and into some of these confrontations so that we can actually all be better. So really grateful to have had this conversation. Share, 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 share all this wisdom so that other people can also uh, hear what we've learned today. And also uh, we'd love to have you come back. So we hope to see you on our very next episode. We here at Uplifting Impact believe that this work is the work. It is how we move forward in the world and how we all become stronger. So thank you very much. We'll see you we'll, on, the, on the next episode. Bye. Thanks so much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.